Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. In 1518, the people of Strasbourg began to dance themselves to death. What caused the dancing plague? Frau Trophea began dancing in the streets. Initially, she drew excited crowds who cheered her on, but as the minutes turned into hours, Frau Trophea continued to dance and dance and dance without pause. Hours became days, and still, Frau Trophea continued to dance with no breaks, as though she had no control over her own body and was unable to stop. The situation worsened as other Strasbourg residents began to join her. By the end of the week, 34 people were dancing uncontrollably. By the end of the month, there were 400 dancers. The endless exercise took its toll, and at the peak of the phenomenon, 15 people per day were reportedly dying of strokes, heart attacks, and sheer exhaustion. After about a month, the epidemic came to an end as abruptly as it began, and those who survived ended their dancing and returned to their lives. What became of Frau Trophea? Whether she survived or died as a result of her unending dancing is not known. This strange event remains well known 500 years later and has come to be called the Dancing Plague. But is this event unique? Well, far from it. Many examples of so-called dancing mania were reported between the 7th and 17th centuries, some extensive and damaging, others little more than small curiosities. In the 1020s in Bernburg, Germany, 18 peasants began to dance uncontrollably in church, disrupting a Christmas Eve service. In 1278, 200 people danced on a bridge over the river Meuse, ultimately leading to its collapse. Between 1373 and 1374, outbreaks of dancing mania were reported in England, Germany, and the Netherlands. A case of dancing mania in 1237 involved a group of children, and has been suggested to be the real-life origin of the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, which originated around the same time. Throughout the 17th century, there were further reports of dancing mania, but they now tended to be single patients, rather than a contagious epidemic, and since then the phenomenon has vanished entirely. So, what was the cause of this bizarre behaviour? There are suggestions that there is some kind of epilepsy or seizure that is the cause, but it's worth remembering that the mania is always described as dancing. The movements are never suggested to be random. Uncontrollable, yes, but coordinated enough to be recognisable as a dance. This makes chorea much more likely than something like a seizure. Chorea is a movement disorder that causes large movements, particularly of the limbs, 
that are smooth and have an illusion of being intentional, although they are in actuality completely involuntary. Chorea is often a symptom of the genetic Huntington's disease, but it can also be acquired as a consequence of HIV or streptococcal infection. To witness Chorea when you're not familiar with it can create a bit of an uncanny feeling. The distinctive movements don't look the way you would expect involuntary movements to look. They often resemble gestures that a person might make intentionally, and can certainly resemble rhythmic dancing. This explanation would require, however, all the sufferers to acquire the same infection and have the same reaction. It also fails to explain why the outbreaks often resolve themselves so quickly. So, are there any other theories on what causes dancing mania? In Italy, dancing mania has also been known as tarantism, and was thought to be the result of a bite from the Lycosa tarantula spider, a separate species to the one that we more commonly call tarantula. This particular spider bite was said to cause the uncontrollable dancing we see in dancing manias. It was even thought that the dancing saved the victim, and that it somehow counteracted the effects of the spider bite and kept the dancer alive. This belief even spawned a style of dance we still know today, the tarantella. Another common theory is ergot poisoning. Ergot is a type of fungus that grows on rye and can cause serious health effects in humans who eat grain contaminated with ergot. Effects include headaches, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, spasms, and psychological effects like mania and psychosis. It also causes vasoconstriction of blood vessels, and a long-term decrease in blood flow can cause parts of the body to become gangrenous. Ergot also produces a chemical known as ergotamine. It's commonly used as a medical treatment, thanks to the vasoconstricting properties which make it useful for combating bleeding and migraines. Ergotamine, however, is also used in the production of LSD, which has led some to wonder if hallucinogenic symptoms might also occur from prolonged ergot poisoning. It does seem plausible, from the health effects brought on by ergotamine and its parent fungus, that this theory could adequately explain the strange behaviour exhibited during the Dancing Plague. But whether the people involved had even consumed ergot is unknown, and so it's not something we could ever confirm one way or the other. A final theory turns inwards and looks at human psychology for an explanation of dancing mania. Mass psychogenic illnesses are illnesses that, while they may present with wide and varied physical symptoms, have psychological or neurological origins with no clear physical cause for the physical symptoms. At its most basic, this means physical symptoms present despite the illness existing only in the patient's head, which is not to say that they're making it up. These illnesses are very real, and the symptoms uncontrollable and distressing. People with these illnesses have no conscious control over what is happening to them. And worst of all, these illnesses can be contagious. In 1962, a village in modern-day Tanzania experienced mass psychogenic illness firsthand when three girls at a boarding school began to laugh uncontrollably. The laughter quickly spread, eventually affecting 95 children, all of which experienced uncontrollable episodes of laughter that lasted anything from a few hours to more than two weeks. The laughter eventually spread outside of the school and into the neighbouring villages, eventually affecting 14 schools and a thousand people. The epidemic eventually fizzled out after 18 months. 
Over in Britain, a similar issue affected a school in Blackburn, Lancashire, where 85 girls were taken to hospital as a wave of dizziness and fainting spread through the students. There were many proposed explanations, such as viruses, food poisoning, or a gas leak, but no concrete cause was ever found, and the incident has since been put down to mass psychogenic illness. The problem with this theory is that it can be hard to imagine how such a thing can be possible. How can people exhibit such bizarre behavior with no conscious control, just because those around them are doing it? A highly publicized case of mass psychogenic illness in Malaysia in 2018 has allowed us a closer look through first-hand accounts. I was at my desk and feeling sleepy when I felt a hard, sharp tap on my shoulder, explained Siti Niranisa, the 17-year-old who sparked the outbreak. I turned round to see who it was, and the room went dark. Siti continues to describe a sudden and terrifying psychological break in which she hallucinated dark and grotesque visions of demons and a face of pure evil. City began to scream, and soon the terror spread to the other girls in the classroom. The screaming became an uncontrollable panic, and it just grew and grew and grew. By the end of the day, 39 people were affected by what was dubbed mass hysteria. Could this contagious hysteria be a modern example of the dancing plague? Examples of dancing mania slowed down in the 17th century and are unheard of today. But is this simply the result of changing cultures? That that which once presented as dancing now presents as laughter or screams? While history leaves us too distant from 1518 to ever solve this mystery for sure, the past hundred years presents us with countless examples of contagious psychogenic illness that might provide us with a greater understanding of the dancing plague of Strasbourg. Weird. Science. Purple. Isn't real. Just isn't real. Okay. Let's back up. We all know how the electromagnetic spectrum works, but nonetheless, it can be easy to forget that the light our eyes see and the Wi-Fi signals our phone pick up are the same thing. Light is such a constant in most of our lives that we never stop to think that it's nothing more than electromagnetic waves of a certain wavelength. And that wavelength, of course, determines what colors we see. Our eyes have two types of photoreceptors, rods and cones. The cones are the cells that detect color, and they work better in brighter conditions, which is why your perception of color is limited in low light situations. We have three different types of cones, each of which detects a particular range of wavelengths. We typically describe these as being red, green, and blue. They're ultimately the only colors we see. Everything else is just a combination of these three primary colors. Looking at a deep orange will strongly stimulate your red receptors and mildly stimulate your green receptors. The result, you see orange. Your overpriced Tiffany & Co cocktail stirrer will strongly stimulate your green receptors and moderately stimulate your blue receptors. The result, Tiffany blue. But what's going on when you look at something purple? Well, we all learned this in primary school, didn't we? You get purple when you mix blue and red. 
But of course, when we look at the electromagnetic spectrum, blue and red are on the opposite ends. They never meet, and they never mix. In our everyday lives, of course, we rarely see pure colours of only one wavelength of light. Almost everything we look at is a complex mix of many, many different wavelengths, which our brain computes in a fraction of a second to spit out a coherent image. But, generally speaking, every colour we perceive does approximate a wavelength that you could pinpoint on the electromagnetic spectrum. But purple? There's no purple wavelength. Just the fact that your bedside lamp and your Bluetooth headphones are actually giving off the same type of energy. The quirk of purple is just another fun reminder that so much of our world, and the way that we see it, is about what goes on inside our heads, than what actually exists outside of them. Nineteenth-century England might bring to mind images of the Victorian era, but today we're going back even further than that. George Washington's death was a recent memory, and Charles Dickens would not be born for another nine years. Eight years earlier, had seen the first vaccine administered. Topical. In London, gaslighting was still several years away, and the dark streets of Hammersmith were lit by flickering candlelight. In December 1803, as anxiety swept through the town after two months of ghost sightings, and even a few direct counters with this aggressive, tormenting spirit. The spectre was said to stalk the local graveyard, and word of mouth at the time said that the ghost was the spirit of a man who had died by suicide. At the time, suicide was considered a sin, and burying someone who died by their own hand in consecrated ground was illegal, but the victim was buried in the churchyard anyway, and was now unable to rest, instead returning to traumatise the people of Hammersmith. One man described an encounter in the graveyard as he walked home. He described a pair of hands wrapping around his neck from behind. He spun around and threw a punch, but his fist didn't meet anything solid, instead impacting softly with what he described as feeling like quote, a great coat. By the time the man had spun around and found his bearings, the ghost had vanished, and he saw nothing but darkness. The ghost was said to have attacked a pregnant woman, and to have scared a stagecoach driver so badly that he fled, leaving behind his coach and eight passengers. In another encounter in late November, a woman was crossing through the churchyard on her way home when she caught sight of the ghost, a human figure wrapped in a white burial shroud. She panicked and fled, but the ghost caught her and wrapped its arms around her. She passed out and was found unconscious in the graveyard by neighbours who led her home. After recovering from the initial shock, she retired to bed, a sleep from which she would never wake. With a body count now under the ghost's belt, the local people were becoming more and more panicked. According to a night watchman, William Girdler, locals began to form armed patrols to catch the spirit. Girdler himself also had an encounter with the ghost when he caught sight of it while patrolling the graveyard and gave chase. The ghost seemed to shed its shroud and vanish. On the evening of January 3rd, Girdler ran into Francis Smith, 
one of the armed citizens who was patrolling the area. Both men were determined to catch the ghost and agreed to meet at 11pm to search the churchyard together. Just after 11, before meeting Girdler, Smith finally encountered the spirit. He cried out, Who are you? And what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you. He fired his shotgun, and the very corporeal form before him fell to the ground, dead. A closer look revealed the corpse of Thomas Millwood, a local bricklayer who'd been wearing the usual uniform of his trade, white flannel clothes and a white apron, all washed clean. The bullet had entered through Millwood's lower left jaw and passed through his spine. Nearby was Anne Millwood, Thomas's sister. She had just parted ways with Thomas moments before the confrontation and was close enough to have heard her brother's final moments. Neighbours arrived on the scene to find Smith agitated by what had just happened. They advised that he return home, where he was arrested a short while later. The charge against Smith was willful murder. During the trial, Millwood's wife testified that on at least one occasion previously, her husband had been mistaken for the ghost due to his white uniform. Knowing the hysteria that was spreading through the community, she urged her husband to wear a large coat to cover his uniform and avoid any misunderstandings in the future. But Millwood stubbornly refused. Millwood's sister also testified at the trial, where she recounted what she heard of the incident and highlighted that although Smith had warned Millwood to stop or he'd shoot, he had in fact shot instantly. The jury seemed to sympathise with Smith and didn't view his crime as murder. After an hour of deliberation, they instead returned a guilty verdict for the charge of manslaughter. The judge rejected this, reminding the jury that the defendant was being tried for murder, and they must return a verdict of guilty or not guilty for murder. After further deliberation, the jury found Smith guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to death. This sentence was ultimately commuted to a year's hard labour. As the case gained more and more attention, and the story of the Hammersmith ghost spread further and further, the real culprit finally came forward. An elderly shoemaker by the name John Graham had spent the past few months wandering the graveyard in a sheet in order to frighten his apprentice, who had been scaring his children with ghost stories. Why Graham continued to fake the haunting for months, even after it became a huge concern among the people of Hammersmith and led to armed patrols, we don't quite know, and probably never will. That's everything that we've got for you today, but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in, and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. If you want to get in touch, you can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is fearbyzoinks, and you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally, if you have a moment, we'd love a rating and a review on whichever app you're getting your podcast from. It would really help us out. 
Until next time, stay spooky. Thank you.